0: Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. In the world of bonds, few firms are as powerful and enduring as PIMCO, and few investors are as storied as Bill Gross, whose impact on active fixed income trading and risk management has been substantial. The Bond King by Mary Childs is a compellingly researched and written book on these two subject matters. Through hours of direct conversation with Bill Gross, discussions with many of the significant players at PIMCO, and a careful recounting of some of the most consequential events in market history, Mary presents a story that began in the early 1970s, reaching a tumultuous unwind in 2014. Through our discussion, we learn of Mary's first interaction with Bill Gross finding herself at Bloomberg as a reporter and on the wrong side of communication of a p number he took issue with. Motivated to bring the less well-understood world of fixed income to life, she set out to chronicle the founding of PIMCO and its tremendous growth under the leadership of Bill Gross. Along the way, we learn of clever arbitrage trades from the 1980s, we revisit the global financial crisis, and we get an inside look at the personalities that formed a culture both intense and deeply committed to research. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Alpha Exchange, my conversation with Mary Childs. My guest today on the Alpha Exchange is Mary Childs. She is the co-host for NPR's Planet Money podcast, also a journalist who has been a senior reporter at Barron's Magazine, Financial Times, Bloomberg News, and has produced a quite excellent and important book, The Bond King, on the storied history of of PIMCO and Bill Gross. Mary, thanks for being a guest with us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor.
0: Well, I have read my fair share of books on finance, both theory and markets themselves, and read a lot about the financial crisis. And I really, really enjoyed your work. It was a truly deep dive, not just into PIMCO, but you bring so much to life throughout some of the tumultuous period during the GFC and some of the post-crisis aftermath. So we'll have a lot to talk about as you kind of tell us about how you came about this project and the experience of it. But let's get our conversation started with just a little bit more on your background. I'm definitely going to have a question on your, your honors thesis on media sting operations <laughs> in the U.S. and India. That's quite interesting.
1: Oh, that's awesome. You were the first person to land on that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Tell us a little bit about yourself. It's a really interesting path that you've taken, but just give us a little bit of your background.
1: Sure. Happy to. And thank you for your kind words about the book. It truly means the world. So yeah, so I majored in business journalism in undergrad, which is a bit unusual, but I had an internship in like political reporting and found it just so foreign to me. And I just couldn't understand, you know, how scoops worked and how it felt like so much favor trading. And it just felt really kind of inaccessible and a little gross to me. No offense to political reporters, it's important work. But then when I, you know, I kind of transitioned to business journalism and realized that I had numbers to check my sources and to be able to do some kind of, you know, poking around on my own and figuring things out on my own. And I found that a lot more well suited to my interests and a lot more fun. And so I took a bit of an interlude before starting at Bloomberg News as an intern in 2009, where I took a year after graduation to do a, a fellowship traveling the world and painting, which was really amazing. I'm so glad I got to do that. I was painting portraits and just getting to know different people and cultures, and it was sort of a, a fire hose of information. And then I landed in New York City at Bloomberg, and yet again another fire hose of information. They have a really great internship program, so I kind of I got to rotate through different teams and. See how money flows from one thing to another and how different asset classes act and found that I really loved bonds. And I was kind of confused why no one talked about them more in the mainstream. You know, I had watched CNBC, I had watched, you know, financial television or just regular television. And it felt like we were always talking about the stock market. And I was like, I think, you know, this other whole world might be more important. And I've since kind of realized that this is the institutional stance of Bloomberg, you know, so to some extent I was just Drinking my, my employer's Kool Aid, which is great Kool Aid, but um, but yeah, you know, chief among the the influential people in this world was Bill Gross, and I remember reading these articles, you know, that my colleagues would write when I was on the stocks team about Bill Gross. This guy I'd never heard of was saying something that moved the market, and I was like, "What? That's not unusual. There are, there are a couple people that that can do that." But I just was struck by how little information in the mainstream there was about this guy, his firm, and that was the beginning of it. I covered bonds for many years at Bloomberg News and then kind of did alts and other things at, at the other places, but always kept this appreciation for credit markets. I just think it's the funnest place in financial markets and way more influential than it gets credit in the mainstream. So this book was sort of an attempt to bridge that gap a little bit to make a little bit of a, an inroad in the popular culture, hopefully, that you know, here, here's a whole big world that People aren't telling you about nearly as much, in part because it's not as accessible to retail traders, sure, but it just matters. So yeah, that was it.
0: So one of the things someone like yourself is always challenged to do is find that next relevant area, as you said, could be bonds. And, and I'm looking at, I, and in fact, I had read your piece on SBF a little bit in the news these days. So maybe we'll get a chance to circle back on that. You've posted an audio file just in terms of some of your investigative work there. Tell us about just the broad process of someone in your seat determining where to go next, where to look, You know how to have a kind of ear to the ground in terms of what's relevant, what's going to be important. What have you learned along the way just in terms of that process?
1: Oh, I love that question. The number one thing for me is sources, is talking to people in the market and talking to as many people as possible in and around the market. And just based on my kind of bias of what's interesting, that often does mean credit market people, you know, private credit, like whatever, that world, I just find it to be so fun. And the kind of shenanigans that people get up to, absolutely fascinating and enormously consequential. And, you know, Bill Gross was obviously the, the kind of biggest and most obvious story to me. And I absolutely still believe that. And I'm so glad I, I did this book. But you're right, there's so many. And there are so many springing up every day. And I think the thing that's that I look for personally, there are a lot of these boldface names across our industry, but not all of those characters, if you will, are necessarily that reflective. I think Sam Bankman-Fried is actually an example of someone who is who thinks about what they're doing and how and why and where they sit in kind of the arc of history, yada yada. And Bill Gross is is a person like this too, where he did a lot of public reflection on who he was and what he was doing. And you know, he's a psych major at Duke, so. That made him kind of unusually interesting. You know, people have been suggesting what my next book should be. And I'm like, first, I got to take a break. But thank you. The people that often get put forward as, you know, next interesting characters are a little two dimensional. You know, if there's some financial market swagger bully, like I'm just like, "Eh." there's not a lot of depth to plumb there, at least not publicly. And Bill was sort of unusual in this in this openness and and some degree of self-awareness and large degree of reflection. So to me, that's what makes somebody interesting and special and kind of a natural protagonist is someone who can take that step back and see where they sit and will be honest about it or, you know, as honest as possible.
0: Well, there's so much in this book. There is a lot of bitterness. There's some kind of scandal in some ways, internal scandal, but there's a lot of market history and your access to Bill Gross, just in terms of what he shared with you, is Quite amazing. Now you're coming at it as a reporter, so you're not trained as a PhD in in finance or anything. And so you, you certainly <laughs> learned along the way, but there's plenty of parts of this book that are, are pretty in-depth just in terms of getting a lot of the jargon perfectly right, exploring some complex trades. What was that like for you just in terms of, you know, obviously having a background just via your role at, at Bloomberg, but also Getting more into the esoterica, let's say, of, of some of the trades, I and mean, one of my favorites in here is the the GDR trade that they pulled off in the eighties. Right, this is so a, good,
1: right? A really fascinating,
0: too. kind of pure mispricing that they found and and found a way to capitalize on. But just tell us about the learning curve a little bit, just in terms of some of the more complex aspects of the trades and products they were dealing in.
1: Yeah, so it was a learning curve. That's absolutely right. You know, coming from Bloomberg and having covered bonds. I definitely knew, you know, and had enthusiasm for the subject matter, but it was so much more in depth. You know, that's the beauty of getting to write a book is you get to really dig in in ways that you do really have time to do as a, as a beat reporter. And the fun thing about being a journalist and the kind of really lucky thing is that you're supposed to ask dumb questions. You're supposed to be like, wait, I'm sorry, what is this trade? What is a bond? What is it? it doesn't matter how basic it is. You need to understand everything. So in this one, you know, I had years of experience covering bonds. I kind of had a, a good feel for the jargon and a good feel for I don't know, more vanilla products. But getting to dig into something like the Jenny May trade, I mean, that to me is where the fun is. And I think there's this stance in a lot of journalism and, and financial journalism to a degree where we feel like we have to sell it to people. Like, you know, bear with me. Or like, this is going to be worth it, I promise. And you don't have to do that. Like, you know, the joy is in the mechanics. The joy is in the structuring, in the the specificity. And I find that, you know, I was reading this book that I've referenced a billion times at this point, but it's called American Bonds. And it's about how it's a sociology perspective on credit markets. And it says, you know, the way we bound structured products reflects our values, reflects our morality, reflects who we want to be in and who we want to be out. And I find that so fascinating and powerful. And that's the way I hadn't thought about it. But it's absolutely true. You know, like, not only do these things matter, but they're fun. And that kind of engineering, once you get to the point where you know what people are saying and the words that they're using, this is the way we, you know, bludgeon each other with, with you know, specific little phrasing in the contracts that nobody else read or forcing, you know, physical delivery where everyone wasn't expecting that or whatever the, the thing is, you know, it, it's demonstrations of power. It's how we make our reputations. It's to me, it's, it's the, the meat of it and the really fun, fun part. You know, I've kind of been enjoying the like Amazon reviews of my book because half of the people that have complaints are like oh it's too juicy at the end it's like tmz and i didn't i didn't want that i wanted more about the trades and the other half of people are like the first half has too many trades i really liked the end like all the management drama so i'm like okay if i take the average i'm happy with these complaints but it, it is like to me you need both like these are both ways that we express power as humans right like we mess with each other in different ways and sometimes that's forcing delivery on a trade and other times that's nasty email or you know showing up in a meeting. So it's the same thing, it's just a different delivery mechanism.
0: Well, take us back, let's say, to the early 80s and maybe just a, a little bit more on this trade and the characters involved, because it's a it's a much different Pimco. It's a much smaller Pimco. The bond market is smaller and much, much less sophisticated. So talk us through just the players. You know, I know Bill Gross and Chris Dianellis, they, they flew to Chicago, you know, to pull this caper off. It's just, it's just such a enjoyable read just in terms of the planning and getting it done.
1: Oh yeah. It's so fun. I will say it wasn't actually, it was Dean Myling and Pat Fisher who went to Chicago, but Bill and Chris were the architects in Newport beach. Sorry, slight distinction, but yeah, it was this trade that, you know, a lot of people just hadn't read the fine print of this brand new rivets contract. They made some assumptions And there were reasonable assumptions in the the kind of interest rate environment that they'd been in. But PIMCO realized that when rates started to turn, it would change the kind of structure of the market, the liquidity of the market. So the contracts that they were working with, they were tied to any bundles of mortgages. And when interest rates started to fall, the cheapest to deliver because of negative convexity, those suddenly became finite. So I think people just hadn't realized that yet, hadn't, Updated their, you know, mental assumptions about what's going to happen to these derivatives when interest rates start to fall. And Timco was like, "Okay, here we go," and managed to amass a big enough position that they could force delivery of these, you know, cheapest to deliver Mays, And people just didn't have them, so there was this. They basically outsized the market, showed up and said, "Hand over your cheapest to deliver." And if people didn't have that cheapest to deliver because there was such a scarcity at that point. They were like, uh, okay, here's the more expensive to deliver, I guess. Like, here you go. So that, that to me was the fun part. I mean, there's another, another kind of leg of the trade where it could convert into a perpetual. And there were apparently a couple of people still receiving coupons on, on those contracts like very recently, which I love. But the idea is just other people hadn't read these contracts as closely. You know, derivatives were pretty new. This was the first stab at this type of contract. And it just wasn't perfect. There were too many different levers to it. There were too many different ways. You know, people were still trying to figure out how to write these contracts in such a way to get a market going. So you needed to make them attractive enough for users. And they, I guess it just made this one a little bit too attractive by accident or maybe just didn't think through the kind of ripple effects of how is this product going to act when interest rates change direction? So that was the insight there. And they weren't alone. You know, the the idea was also, I think someone at Lehman was doing it and it became this legend on Wall Street that, you know, People got carried out, the traders in Chicago were literally leaving their, you know, white hankies in the air and surrender. It was truly a tour de force. And among the people who were in this product area and a little bit outside, they were like, Okay, beware of Pinco. Like they know what they're doing. They're doing more work on these contracts than you are. If they're amassing something in size, maybe you should run. <laughs> <All>
0: right, <laughs> like, right.
1: Maybe you've missed something here.
0: Well, you know, there's a component to that trade that I think reminds me a little bit of the GME debacle mm-hmm. back in January Absolutely. of 2021, which is just a market shortfall. There's a shortage. And anytime there's a shortage, the price could become extremely high and unfavorable to the person that needs to <laughs> cover the short. So that's that's really interesting. You know, one of the other things you do here, which I really enjoyed, is you go back to the founding of PIMCO and Pacific Mutual. And I'd love for you just to share this whole pitch that bill gross made basically this whole idea that you can actually trade bonds that the value will go up and down you don't just need to tuck them into the vault and there's a a real earnestness to the building of the firm at that such an early time frame you know where they were kind of in uncharted waters trying something new but just tell us a little bit about that because that's really important history for the bond market itself
1: Absolutely. And it is a little mind boggling to look back, you know, decades later and see that this just didn't exist back then. Like it's, it's just kind of a leap. Right. And they were, I mean, in that way that I guess that makes them like visionaries because it just, they saw this world in which bonds could be traded and didn't need to just be these stagnant things, you know, in your, as you say, in the vault that you sent in, you know, your little coupon for your interest payment. And that was that. So, yeah, he worked for this insurer and they basically had no interest in, you know, dynamic bond trading in, in active bond trading because they had this very nice system of stacking up their liabilities against their assets, against, you know, what kind of money do I need coming in? What kind of money do we need going out? And bonds provided a very reliable stream of income that they could match against their outgoing liabilities and everything was great. And Bill Gross is like, well, what if I traded them? which is, you know, scary, and, you know, people say this and I have this in the book, but it, it, it was really kind of a leap of faith on the part of, of his bosses to say, all right, here's five million dollars in a little shell company. See what you can do. See how this goes. Go out there and trade some bonds. There were very few counterparties at this time. But the, the reason that they were amenable, that they did agree to this, not only because they you know, liked Bill and thought that he could do well, inflation was really high. So if you have these bonds sitting in the vault they're just losing value by the day, right? And there could be a newer, better bond out there that's paying a higher interest rate that you should be buying. So if you're able to find a buyer for that bond, yeah, maybe you should take your money and, and put it elsewhere. So the argument was kind of bolstered by the macroeconomic conditions. And I do think that that Bill grabbed onto that and saw this opportunity and was like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this. So that was the dawn of PIMCO well before there was really a market to be made. And one of the things that people say about Bill is oh, he, he didn't invent the market. You know, obviously it's impossible for one person to invent a market because you have to trade with someone. But there is this guy that I talked to who was extremely fun. I kind of I, I cannot find any other reference to him really anywhere. His name is Howard Rakoff, and he's one of Bill's dear friends, and he's kind of the patient zero of active bond trading. So yeah, it wasn't actually Bill Gross. Bill was kind of radicalized by Howard Rakoff, and Howard came to him and said. I'm obsessed with trading bonds. You got to try this. And he loves Bill's enthusiasm for it, but it it really, you know, he was the one going around the country, getting people on board and trying to find people to trade with. So that was really fun to discover as well.
0: Well, they start making progress. They land AT&T in 1977, I think, and then RJR the next year. So they're starting to get more credibility. They hit big on this Ginny Mae trade in, I I think you said, 83. So they're getting the Kind of credibility from an expertise standpoint, what were some events after that that were consequential just in terms of the earlier days of the firm from a growth standpoint? Anything stand out maybe in the late 80s or 90s?
1: Well, there were so many things that I didn't end up finding a place for in my book. I had a very plodding textbook history of PIMCO that was like an earlier draft. And my editor was like, oh, Mary, no, uh. <laughs> no, this is not what we want. Because it was just like in 1986, they negotiated again with management about the payment structure and the profit structure and how they could be compensated. You know, it was a little bit too in the weeds. I thought it was very interesting. But I mean, there are interesting kind of business school case studies to be made about the compensation structure and how they spun out gradually over the course of the 80s into their own kind of entity, because they had this relationship with, you know, their parent company and tried to sit, you know, it was a bit of a mismatch, right? Because if you're this kind of flashy up and coming fund manager, in a world which hadn't been very flashy, you know, the the buy side wasn't really the place to be at the time. But Bill's driving around in a fancy car with the license plate bonds one, you know, and parking right next to the president and being like, or parking right next to the CEO and and just kind of swaggering around. And the rest of the people, the insurance company are like, who is this guy? (laughs) Like, what is it?" And they were told, you know, you are welcome to act like that the minute you start bringing in money like that, (laughs) feel free. So there was a bit of a culture clash. And I think Bill kind of recalibrated over the years, but, Ninety four, they had like a reverse merger. They went international. There were a lot of different. And then in, in the late nineties, they tried to start up this equities business, which they basically started and shut down relatively quickly because it got caught up a couple years later in the mutual fund timing scandal. Big hobby horse for Elliot Spitzer. So there was so much complexity and nuance there. I wrote an entire chapter about the equity thing, and the chapter just is <laughs> on the cutting room floor. So. I'm happy to to read it to you one day, but it didn't make the (laughs) go.
0: Well, you mentioned your first kind of version, which was a little bit too textbook oriented. So this was obviously a very challenging project for you. I mean, you can't produce something like this without, I'm sure, a lot of good days, but also a lot of more challenging days. What were some of the the really challenging aspects just from a gathering information standpoint? What were some of the roadblocks that that you ran into?
1: So many. I mean, kind of from a broad standpoint, these are obviously people that are used to having control over their own narrative, right? And many of them were really not pleased that I was writing this book. You know, the events of 2014 were deleterious to their net worth because their, you know, shadow equity and Timco got dinged and they wanted that to all go away. They wanted the bad news and the bad headlines to go away and they really didn't want me to, you know, write a book and publicize a book about all of the drama. So that was probably the biggest obstacle. I think probably the biggest thing was one of the central characters wouldn't talk to me. Muhammad Alarian kind of stonewalled me for seven years and refused to speak with me for the book, which is obviously his right, but he's a very central character. So I had to kind of go around and talk to all of his friends and anyone in the whole universe who had ever worked with him who could paint the picture for me of, okay, he was feeling this way. Okay, this is what he was annoyed about. This is what he would be complaining about. And this is what he liked at the time and try to synthetically recreate what his experience was. And then in the little turn of events, I got, you know, a note from a representative of his in December 2021. So we are like days and the double digits of days before my book comes out. And they're like, hi, Muhammad Alarian would like to speak. And eventually we get a note from or a letter from his lawyer. They had obtained a pre-publication copy of the manuscript, which is not something that anyone in the process would do, right? Like, the publishing industry is very accustomed to sensitive material, right? So there's, it's just like, how did this happen? How did they get a copy of this? And they had notes. So they had on page this and such, you know, we object to this characterization and some of them, you know, were kind of funny. Like there was one about the timing of ordering a cake and some of them were very helpful. And I actually, there's one instance where, so for example, I suspected just based on talking to people that the treatment of Muhammad Alarian's desk after he announced he was leaving, was kind of a sore spot. And that, you know, I got to reflect in the manuscript because I got these notes from his lawyer. So, you know, I wish he had talked to me. I wish I could have gotten more of an inside look at his life and his mental state and what he thought. But luckily for me, he had talked publicly about a lot of this. And I could do, you know, the regular reporting thing to triangulate and and substantiate. And then I got the absolute delight and stress of a lawyer letter And I got to add all those notes in. So absolutely not how I would have wanted any of that to go. But the book is obviously better for having his perspective in it. I was a little, you know, gratified to see so much of my reporting corroborated. And of course, delighted to have him participate. But that was stressful.
0: Yeah, his contribution to the book was absent. And he doesn't come across incredibly well. I find him to be a superior thinker on markets. I mean, I have to just say... He was so right on COVID early days. I mean, February of 2020, the warnings that he was giving to people were, I thought, invaluable. And I also think he's gotten this Fed cycle incredibly well. But, you know, he's working alongside Bill Gross. So these two guys are extremely talented and extremely passionate about what they do. Was there any shared, just in terms of characteristics, where hey, this might've worked had things been a little bit differently? What were some of the things that might have worked between the two of them?
1: Oh, what a great question. I mean, they were both really excited about the prospect of their working relationship. I think they do share a lot of the, like they're both very mediagenic, albeit in different ways. They're both great at breaking down complicated, like you're saying, great at breaking down these kind of complicated financial ideas, great at seeing these seismic shifts, great at talking about them to a lay audience or or a not lay audience. So I think they do share that kind of brand or face element. I think people, you know, maybe they didn't account for the fact that like Bill didn't really like it when other people had the spotlight is is what I was told from a lot of different sources. So I think maybe that was baked in that difficulty and a handoff would have been difficult no matter what. But I do think they, they share a lot of similarities. They're both, you know, intense and hardworking. I think they manifest their intensities very differently. And that made them kind of oil and water, made them not able to speak the same language of what they were doing. You know, Mohammed Alarian would be in the office super early. And, you know, I think both of them valued FaceTime, but they didn't really overlap that much. And, you know, Bill would kick off to go golfing or go to his exercise classes, which I think he thinks of as accretive to, you know, his ability to see clearly and, and keep his head clear. But they also, you know, Bill was all about granularity and trades and the Taylor rule and Phillips curve and all of this. And while Muhammad Alarian like absolutely talks about that stuff too. I think he's much more of a macro thinker and much more of a kind of a macroeconomist, not a trader. And you know, he has overseen trading and has been a trader, but it's just not the same kind of position, the same stance. And they just have different goals in that way. So those conversations were a little bit doomed, I think.
0: Well, Bill Gross is obviously the central character of the book, and so I'd love to get a better understanding of just your interactions with him, you know, getting to know him, what you took away that you didn't expect to, what you might have thought in the beginning that didn't turn out to be, right? But I want to first before we do that, I want to read just a quote from you which I thought was just summarizes very well his style. You know, he's writing that investment outlook since I think you said 1978. Boy, that's a long time. You know, obviously as you say a kind of a, a force of personality type of person and you write here that Part of his style was this idea that he could grind his view into everyone's consciousness and this idea that by kind of speaking his book, by telling everyone what he thought with such consistency and in so much depth that he could sway opinion. He could sway the the feeling or the the way in which things were priced. And At no point was that more prominent, and I'd love to talk more about this, than during the financial crisis. So tell us first, just in terms of the process of of getting to know him and and things you took away from that process.
1: Yeah, one thing about Bill Gross that I think almost any journalist will tell you is that he is to some degree just an open book. I arrived more or less on the beat in the aftermath of Muhammad Alarian's departure, so I was kind of you know the new kid in school. I think he already had relationships with all of the other journalists, and he doesn't really think about cultivating relationships with journalists in the same way that a lot of other people do. He appreciates a kind of, you know, appreciation for credit markets. Like I think that was helpful for me that I knew what he was talking about when he described trades or what he was doing. But because I arrived fresh, I think I just didn't have any priors. I didn't have any like axe to grind as people always think that journalists have axe to grind. We really don't. We just want to write down what happens, but maybe just speaking for myself there, but you know, I'm like the new kid in school. Everyone's like, trying to tell me what happened so that their view is the one that like they hope that I'll carry forward. And I think that, you know, Bill was talking to me and, you know, telling me about different trades that he was working on or putting on at the time. And I think I didn't understand as well at the time, kind of my own role in the world. As a journalist, I've always been a little bit cavalier about talking to like important people. I don't treat them as God, you know, it just never really occurred to me to be like, oh, thank you so much. Sir. Like, I don't really have that phone. And so in the beginning of, of talking to Bill, I think he's so accessible. And to some extent, you know, I think that all of the things that he told me, he might have told anyone, right? Like, I just was kind of the person who was there. And there are ways to be the person that is there. You know, you demonstrate that you are receptive or, you know, not biased or, or any number of things or, you know, can can talk about the market in an interesting way. But it is to some, you know, he's he's actually just a reflective and open person. I was a little nervous, you know, it didn't occur to me until I was writing the chapter that involved Bill Gross's divorce. I'm reading, you know, the documents that came out in, in that that were pretty not great. You know, it was a really tumultuous time and I don't think Bill Gross would condone the actions that he took at the time. And I'm reading this and I'm like, Oh, it really didn't occur to me that like he might do that to me. Like he might do things that are, you know, to make my life uncomfortable, or if he's unhappy with the book in some way, like he could be, you know, petty about it if he wanted. And I was like, oh God, wait, why did I not think of this before? Like that seems sad. You know, I, I know about that, but I think of myself as such an outsider and being this kind of, I don't know, in a vacuum, in a different orbit and just writing down the truth. So that was a little jarring, but he's honestly been nothing but respectful. He's been competitive, which is, you know, on brand. But he published his own memoir two weeks before my book came out and was out there tweeting about it and Instagramming about it. He started an Instagram account to promote it. So honestly, I feel like that to me demonstrates like he's just a competitive guy. He really needs somebody to compete with. And I was happy to be that person. It just was an interesting moment to be kind of in the seat that a lot of my sources had been in an abstract way. You know, they told me about, oh, Bill acts this way, Bill X that way. But I finally got to experience it when my book came out that, you know, here I am on the field with Bill in sort of a a way that I didn't expect. So that was, that was really interesting.
0: There's a lot of contradictions. And I guess maybe we all have some version of contradiction. He's incredibly competitive. seems challenging to work with. He's incredibly charitable in terms of giving. So there's a huge force for good there one of the areas that you probably spend the most time on just in terms of markets is the financial crisis and it's this telling of pimco preparing itself for what it sees and listen this was a as chaotic a time period for anyone in the markets as we've ever experienced really for you know the better part of 2 years what did you learn from that part of your your research and investigation just in terms of pimco Seeing what some others saw, but obviously being there early, so that's never easy. I think you actually do use the the old quote you know to be too early is to be wrong, and then just navigating through that chaos, what did you learn from that part of your research?
1: Yeah, I think it is true that so many people saw this coming, and the thing that i've learned i didn't really think about the degree of like how people structured their trades around it, right? You know, we're all impressed with the Michael Burry's of the world, the John Paulson's of the world. But there's an argument to be made that the risk that Pimco took was structured better because it was safer because they just pulled back. Yeah, they lost money going in, so like they didn't have the 2006 or 7 returns that they'd hoped or returns that they really were proud of, especially in 07. And and I think that there's an argument to be made both ways, but in my view, you know, what I learned from looking at this really closely is that because they pulled back, they were able to step in when everyone was panicking and selling stuff. And they were able to buy things up at a discount because they had the cash sitting there because they hadn't lost their money and they, hadn't, you know, they weren't the ones in a panic trying to sell. And that, especially I think in, in Iveson's fund, you see that over the course of like years then as they offload those securities and take profits, as you will. And that I think is, if I were like an investor, if I were a client of John Paulson and of PIMCO, That kind of looks better where it's not this one, you know, swing for the fences, kind of high risk, high reward trade that like, if he had gotten the timing wrong, if he had been five minutes off, you know, he wouldn't have made his money. There's this really great article in the Wall Street Journal from the time that was like this guy got in a motorcycle accident, like just a guy got in a motorcycle accident. And because of his medical bills, he wasn't able to make his mortgage payments. And because he wasn't able to make his mortgage payments, he was the last person in that, you know, pool of mortgages that caused John Paulson to make his billion dollars. So it's like, if there wasn't a motorcycle accident, that trade wouldn't have worked. And that's staggering to me. So I guess it's the idea of informed risk and of structuring it, you know, more carefully. It's just kind of making sure that the risk that you're taking isn't subject to the winds of chance and timing and all that. So that was fun to think about.
0: One of the things that really just Jumps off the page throughout the book is, as we've been saying, the competitiveness, this burning desire to succeed. And I'd also say a, a desire, I don't want to say it's to be noticed, but to be credited with it and really struggling with mistakes. And so in March of 2011, he takes the entire total return fund out of Treasury securities. And, you know, this was the debt ceiling year and and so ironically the US is on the verge of a technical default and what happens of course the bond market rallies furiously right, right, right. <laughs> so that was a very difficult period for him what was engaging you know just in terms of the thought process during those difficult times forget the internal tumult but just the market times when his market call was wrong and they underperformed and just dealing with that disappointment what did you learn in terms of you know speaking to him about that
1: That one is a weird one because it does kind of deviate from all of the things that he says about risk-taking. And this is the moment that a lot of people point to as, you know, this was when his credibility was undermined internally. This was like a dent in his armor and externally, you know, he had to do this public apology for having taken the exact wrong side of this trade. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of, of questions about the kind of risk management approach there this wasn't one that we really lingered on talking. I feel like I didn't get anything more from him than frankly, people got at the time. Because again, he he does a lot of this publicly, he does a lot of the kind of mea culpa, literally the name of his investment outlook that in which he apologized was mea culpa. But it is, it is a weird moment because he the things that had worked so well for so long, he just suddenly throws them out the window and says, okay, I'm going entirely short treasuries. And I don't know if it's like hubris, if he's you know, high on his own supply or whatever the things are, like if he's, you know, thinking after the financial crisis, they were the, you know, the stars, they were of the mutual fund world, money was pouring in, you know, assets under management doubled, the firm size doubled. So it's possible that he just felt, I don't know, really smart and got over his skis and made this big pronouncement and strayed from his risk management and or more consistent and less like, do know, cool guy on CNBC making a call strategies. I mean, people within PIMCO would say, mm, no, this is Bill. Bill always makes these big calls. It's just that you don't see them quite this, at quite this scale and this publicly. And I think that's, of course, true. Like this, this was just kind of, it's just the scale and the publicity were next level. So it's a really, weird moment.
0: Who are some of the kind of characters in the subplot that you really enjoyed learning about?
1: Oh, Pimco is just full of these characters. I felt like it was sort of a rich tableau to the point where my editor was like, why do you have 35 characters? And even after calling so many of them, I'm just devastated that I wasn't able to to include more people. And like some people reading it are like, I'm having a hard time keeping track. Who's Mark Kiesel again? And I'm like, who's Mark Kiesel? (laughs) I feel like Mark's a great one.
0: He's a close personal friend of mine. Oh, amazing. (laughs)
1: Oh, I picked the perfect one. See, he didn't get enough yeah, airtime. That's, that's what I'm saying.
0: The famous piece for rent. Yes, for rent. <laughs> for sale. For exactly, sale. for yeah. sale. <laughs> it
1: was so good and, and very prescient. And yeah, I think Paul McCauley obviously is such a good one. I feel like he's just so lucid and like normal. I'm from Virginia. So his accent is familiar to me. Like the, he just like speaks a language that I understand. But I think everyone does. You know, I think everyone speaks his language. So he's just he's just so accessible and smart. Scott Simon is another one that I think is like very delightful. He is kind of one of the few people within the entire book who has this devil make care attitude. Cause he literally doesn't care. He's just kind of and you know, doing his own thing. And, and I find that sort of refreshing and a fun counterweight. Yeah. It's pretty full of characters. And then everybody's personality gets like really strong and, and pronounced at the end, you know, when we're in the final moments and it's very stressful, I think everybody acts how they, their personalities just become super acute. <laughs>
0: Well, you really brought a lot to life there. You obviously covered you know, a difficult time for a firm that remains incredibly successful. It's a storied firm led by a, a storied investor, so there's some challenges there, but you bring to life so much in terms of market history. It's really well-written. It's a very enjoyable read, so I congratulate you for putting all the time and effort into it. I'm sure it was a beast of a project, but I'm sure you're glad it's done. I sure am, it's good to have you. No,
1: thank you. I so appreciate that. It means a lot coming from you.
0: Appreciate you being a guest on our podcast. And the book, again, is called The Bond King by Mary Childs. So thanks again, Mary. Thank
1: you. I appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to The Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alpha exchange podcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time.